Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's podcast comes from Ukraine. I spent last week in Kiev, which was fascinating in many ways I hadn't expected. There's no doubt there's a war going on, the central stations thronged with soldiers in uniform heading east to the battlefront. Step out of the station and you see a skyscraper, with many of its windows still blown out after a Russian missile attack. But in other ways, life now seems surprisingly normal. There are pleasant cafes and restaurants doing good business. There's a morning rush hour. In the parks, people are out taking their dogs for walks. So in this podcast, I thought it'd be interesting to focus on the economic and social side of the war. My guest is Lib Vajlinsky, director of the Center for Economic Strategy, a think tank in Ukraine. So how resilient or fragile are Ukraine's economy and society. Missiles and armed drones do still occasionally hit Kiev. Some landed while I was in the city last week. But, as I discovered, most residents now tend to ignore the frequent air raid alarms. Police search for fragments of the missile that hit this residential neighbourhood in Kiev. Dozens upon dozens of apartment windows were shattered in the blast. Residents and workers immediately started to clear up. Russia's effort to knock out the infrastructure and electricity in the capital have basically failed. But the war is still ever-present. As one government official put it to me, most people have contacts in their phones who cannot answer anymore because they're dead. There are still many civilian men on the streets of Kiev, but potentially they're all liable to be called up. And with a big Ukrainian counteroffensive looming, the death toll in the war, already shockingly high, will rise once again. Yet, at the same time, life in Kiev is stabilizing a little bit. Some refugees are returning, and last week the curfew was eased. It now runs just from midnight to 5 a.m. So I began my conversation with Lib Vezhdinsky by asking how he explains the apparent normalcy of life in the Ukrainian capital. Kiev currently is rather well defended. Certainly it is not like a year ago when you still had Russians outside of the city. But also it is much better defended in terms of air defense. So there were already waves of people returning to Kiev in late spring last year, then in summer. In fact, before this large-scale missile attacks on energy infrastructures that stopped this process. That was in October. That was in October and November, yeah. And now I see some sort of another wave after everybody understood that we overcame the winter. 
Now we will have no issues with uh, heating, no issues with electricity. Yeah, I mean, it's quite striking, isn't it? The, the lights are on, basically, and there don't seem to be yeah, any yeah. power cuts. And although the Russians still seem to be trying, because there were attempted drone attacks last night, something did land in the city earlier this week, but their attempt to destroy the electricity infrastructure of Ukraine, has that failed? Or? I think it failed nationally and in most regions and local entities in Ukraine. There are some very localized issues now. We were saved first by very significant share, like before the war it was 50% of power generation by the nuclear stations. So uh, they can't shell those, obviously. They could, but it is too much even for Russians. They could try to shoot like transformers connection nuclear power stations to the grid, but it is also risky. And so people that are experts are saying Russians were able to close autobahns in the energy grid. But Ukraine, fortunately, being a very industrialized country, especially in Soviet times, with a lot of spare capacity that is not used now, we had a lot of village roads. And we were able to use these village roads while repairing autobahns. And then in early February, Russians understood that they are sending missiles that are not having ability to have severe disruption, and they stopped it. So I think that now majority of strikes, they are, as it was before October, they are again some military or related to military targets. Yeah. And in terms of the economic figures, I don't know how much they tell you, but... They say that last year Ukraine's economy shrank by 30% when Russia shrank by maybe 2%, 3%. But that it's stabilized now that having had that 30% hit, you're going to have maybe even mildly positive growth. Is that how you see it? This figure 30% is slightly misleading. It's slightly misleading even for domestic audience because like the government is not explaining it well enough. When you look on the military map, you understand that significant part of Ukraine is still under occupation. And even larger chunks were under occupation during some parts of 2022. So if parts of the economy are under occupation or under active hostilities, like you could not have economic activities there, or you could not have economic activities there, this is the part of economy of Ukraine. So if they occupy 20% of the country in a sense. Less than 20, yeah. but you could say now maybe 12-15% are just territories which are not under control of the government or are under active hostilities, and you could not have economic activities there. So then you look on refugees. We did the study at our think tank trying to understand what is the real number of refugees. There is no single government, quasi-official even, figure on how many refugees we have. But we used all sources that we could have, including those used by the government. We come with estimate of five to six million people. And before the war, the government estimate was that Ukraine had a population of 37 million not taking into account this older Donetsk and Lugansk areas that were not controlled by the government. So then if you divide five or six by 37, you'll come with additional 15% who are not consuming, who are not producing, 
and the horn not paying taxes. And then we conducted the survey of Ukrainian refugees abroad, and we saw that generally the proportion of adults to children is one-to-one. So only half of them could produce something. So you've lost about three million adults of working age, yeah. three to two and a half million. Yeah, yeah. If another three are children, then certainly there are mothers. Some of them were not working even before the war because they had babies, etc. But still, they are economically active populations, theoretically. And some certainly were working before the war. In summer, we had a webinar where we had HR director of one of the largest banks in Ukraine, Raiffeisen Bank. And she said on that point, 15% of bank staff who were on payroll and working were working from outside of Ukraine. So turning to the issue of refugees, I know that you think that it was almost, after the Russian army, the second biggest threat to the future of Ukraine that so many people have left and whether they come back because some of them will be out of the country for, you know, close to a year now. And if they don't come back in the next year or two, maybe they put down roots overseas and you lose a significant chunk of the population and a young chunk of the population and children and so on. Give me a sense of how you view that issue. Generally, it's a very complicated issue because it is absolutely not clear for two specific issues. Like the first, what to do with military-aged men? Because like on the very first day of full-scale Russian invasion, there was a decision taken that men aged 18 to 60 are not allowed to leave the country. And it meant that on one side, you have a mobilization pool. On another side, you have men that could work in the Ukrainian economy because they could not work anywhere else. And also you have some women and children who are also staying or returning because they want to live with their husband and father. So it is like one very complicated decision. If the war drags on, what is more important for the country? Having this full pool of men 18 to 60 or to have happy families living together where they want to live and when they are not directed to live by the government. Do you feel that there's a risk of family breakdown? Absolutely. Fortunately, we are in 2023 where you have video conferencing, etc. At least father could see his child, but still, like, certainly she's not a normal life. And certainly there are many, many cases of men using illegal ways to leave the country because they got job abroad, which is also a very big issue for IT industry in Ukraine. This was expected to grow 20 to 30 percent in dollar terms in 2022, but currently it is struggling. Customers do not want to hire Ukrainian developers because they consider risk of getting them drafted to the army or another electricity cut too high. And for example, if you are a senior developer who wants to get a good job, but he could get this good job on the outside of Ukraine, then some people are patriotic and say, okay, I will work on a job that is less qualified, get less money, but I will be in my country and help my economy. But some are not as patriotic. And second, the like very complicated decision is a decision for host countries. You want to help those Ukrainians that are refugees in your country. And you do not want them to sleep under bridges. You do not want university professors to clean toilets. You want to have life as good as possible for them. If you are a pragmatic country like Germany or Poland, for example, you have your own deficit of labor. 
and then you see Europeans, good educated, young, coming like a wave to your country, willing to work, maybe some of them with children, but okay, sooner or later children will grow and you will have full-time workers in your economy. But on the other side, it is a friendly country. So they they understand the risk of taking the best and brightest of Ukraine. Absolutely. Because on one side, it is good for them and good for the people from Ukraine. But in the long-term dimension, it is bad even for those countries because it undermines the stability of Ukraine in the future because the less active entrepreneurial people you have in the country, which is under the constant threat of aggression from the East, the weaker this country will be and the more waves of risks could come from this country. So in some ways, I mean, obviously, everybody for humanitarian reasons wants the war to end quickly. For social reasons, for economic reasons, the longer it goes on, the more the damage is. And yet it's striking when I'm here, almost nobody says, let's do a peace deal or a ceasefire. They all say we've got to keep fighting because they're scared of the threat from Russia. I don't believe the Russians would stop or you can't trust them. But is there a case for, you know, looking at that economic, social and humanitarian grounds for trying to get a ceasefire? No. And very clear explanation for this no is just in texts and speeches of Putin. And from what he says, it is very clear that until Putin is alive, there is a close to 100% risk of another aggression from him. For those fathers in Ukraine who are waiting for their families to come back, what is the reason for them to ask for a ceasefire to see their families if just in a year they will need to send their families to another place without having accommodations there, without everything their families already have in the host country and having the sort of second episode of the series. So either there should be security guarantees that will prevent it. There is this concept of a hedgehog when Ukraine is so strong that no Putin in his mind will attack Ukraine, but Realistically, you understand that there are still four times more population in Russia than in Ukraine. They have a very big military arsenal. And I think that the only real case when I could sleep well and do not expect the second episode is when tomorrow in the morning I read that somehow Putin is dead because of some extreme case of illness coming to him overnight. Or there is some abrupt change that will bring a real policy change in Russia. The most radical people in Ukraine will say that you need to break up Russian empire, and I agree with them. But for me to sleep well, it will be enough to hear from Moscow that some new leader says special military operation, as they call it, was a mistake. We need to concentrate, as Navalny says, for example, on our domestic Russian issues, as we have a lot and make Russians really happy, not thinking about restoring spheres of influence and everything else. That's very clear. I mean, there can't really be a trustworthy peace with a Putin that's still in power. So everybody here is focused and internationally on this much-discussed counteroffensive, which people expect in the next couple of months. I know you're not a military guy, but everybody talks about this all the time. What realistically, do you think Ukraine can hope for? And is there a risk that there's so much built up on this counteroffensive 
that you know if it doesn't go well, there'll be a loss of morale or a loss of international support. I am really not a military guy. Like I understand what is critical, for example, for economic scenarios. In fact, what we are working on, we work on trying to understand what will be the impact on economy of different military scenarios. And we understand that if we have really a successful breakthrough Russian ranks in the Zaporizhia regions that will result in this land route from Russia to Crimea under at least fire control, then it will be a significant factor that could press Putin into coming for real negotiations, and then it could also have an impact on his regime, for example. And at least it could be an option that could undermine Putin domestically, like making the sort of lame duck as like, you could have a concept of lame duck in authoritarian regimes, but at least it could give Ukraine some space to get the security guarantees. And also, which is important from our viewpoint, having not only enough guarantees for families to come back, but getting enough guarantees to money to come to Ukraine. Because currently, for a year already, you are just hearing about this big reconstruction of Ukraine. We could not see real money except some rather small amounts from U.S. government, for example, 1.5 billion, even find money on fast recovery, so-called fast recovery, which is not like these big plans of new cities rebuilt in a green way on the place of old Soviet-type inefficient cities, but just take those small residential houses in Bucha and restore them so that people could live there, put new plaster on schools so that children could learn there and get people who have no other places to live, like returning back to their homes. So obviously it's a very delicate moment because the war could go in either direction over the summer and it's very hard to look beyond the battlefield. But it strikes me that this has been a very tragic year for Ukraine and so many people killed and so much destruction. But also there's a strange optimistic side to it as well, that Ukraine now has an international recognition and respect that it hasn't had for a very long time. And also this prospect of joining the European Union, I don't know how realistic you think it is, but do you think that Ukrainians have a sense that if they can get through this, that there really is a better future on the other side? I think it is a feeling of momentum. Really, it was a momentum that shown that, okay, we are a smaller, mid-sized country, fighting the second army in the world, and somehow it works. Even our country, to some extent, despised our military, not because we were thinking that Ukrainians are not a nation that is good in fighting, which is not the case. If you read about Ukrainian history, like Cossacks, etc., are the sort of mercenaries to some extent of their age. But we never invested enough into military, we never reformed the military enough to expect them to be a real army of the country of this size. And then we saw that, no, in fact, the country has enough potential. And so we saw momentum there. We saw momentum in prevention, in fact, Russian attacks on anything to be successful, like energy, not successful, economy, disruption, economy, financial system, payment system, not successful at all, like no disruption at all for 13 months. Military, not successful, like certainly not like Kiev in three days, but even now everybody is talking about Ukrainian counteroffensive, not Russian, new and finally successive offensive. 
and they could not even take this Bakhmut, 70,000 people before the war for I don't know how many months. So the second part is what you said about membership in the EU, that I believe is absolutely a realistic idea, maybe not two years as Ukrainian government wants, but our friends from other think tanks who are better experts in EU intricacies say that five years is a realistic term technically. I could say because for decades we saw that really the West was absolutely underestimating us. Saying they are corrupt, we don't want to know anything about them. Technically, they are in Europe and they are the part of a broader European family, but there are some strange people. And now, like they see these people, uh, Dutch diplomats, uh, a lot of cafes and hotels you go to in Amsterdam, and then you somehow find Ukrainian waiters, Ukrainian baristas, Ukrainian receptionists working there. And without asking some direct questions, you even could not imagine from the first side that they are Ukrainians, not Dutch. So it, in fact, broke these misperceptions. Although you were these kind of post-Soviet backward people. Uh, yeah, because for many people, unfortunately, Ukrainians were living on the streets where bears are going in winter in the same way like they thought about Siberia. So Ukraine's image has been transformed internally as well as externally. But on the other hand, it's been at a terrible human cost. Somebody said to me, every Ukrainian know somebody who's been killed at the front. I don't know whether that's literally true, but there must be, yeah, a sort of sense of mourning in the society as well. It is a very mixed state. On one side, you come to Kiev and you see that like restaurants are full. People are moving as normal with mobile phones, resolving some business issues, etc. And sometimes even going to concerts. If you want to listen to classical music or jazz or go to theater, you could go and do this. And you want to maintain this part of normalcy because it is like what, in fact, brings more resources to continue what you could do the best in times of war. But on another side, yes, you are simultaneously mourning. And I don't know personally anybody from the military who was killed, but I know, for example, Masina Yam, very famous lawyer who lost his eye, who is a disabled person. Fortunately, doctors saved his brain, saved his life. But I could say that in many cases, civilian losses are even more tragic because maybe you could expect that people who are in the military, they could die. But if you hear about a child who was dead, sleeping at night with Russian missile coming into some multi-story building, like it was in Dnipro, for example, in January, for me, it is much more like morally strong. So yes, it is complicated for the nation, but it is not changing the perception of the need to win. And you could see it from the surveys share of Ukrainians who support fight until this war ends on the Ukrainian terms is not falling. And fortunately, in fact, Russians do not have additional tools to change it. They tried with this first wave, it didn't work. Then they tried with energy, it didn't work. What else? They do not have anything more in their arsenal except nuclear strike. Now, not tactical, but large scale against Ukraine. And then what? And Ukrainians are smart people. Maybe they are not reflecting on this as analysts, but they feel that there is no reason to say, oh, okay, let's stop. You mentioned 
corruption and this image of corruption, but obviously it was more than an image. There was a big problem. And those people in the West who are still skeptical about helping Ukraine say that. They sometimes point to that and say, this is a society that is corrupt, etc. How much has Zelensky or the war been able to take on those issues? Do you think there's a prospect that the Ukraine that emerges at the other side will have been able to deal with some of those issues? I think that, unfortunately, we haven't done all the homework. And Zelensky personally could have done much more. I could give just one example that is discussed everywhere from ministers to civil society experts, which is the case of deputy head of presidential administration, Oleg Tatarov who was spokesman of the Ministry of Internal Affairs under Yanukovych times when these special police forces were beaching people in Maidan. And then he was working in private sector and he has a National Anti-Corruption Bureau case against him on the case of construction and development related to development companies. But he's still deputy head of presidential administration. People from all walks of life, including the government, are saying that he is the most critical impediment. Certainly, you could not resolve all corruption issues in the society overnight, but you could show the political will. And not firing Tatarov is a very clear sign of not showing political will. Why do you think Zelensky hasn't done it? The general explanation of why Ukrainian presidents, and it is not just Zelensky, it was the same with Poroshenko, why Ukrainian presidents are not living this way, even when it is bad for them and for the country, they really believe that if you are not controlling these independent institutions yourself, they will be controlled on the very same day by the political opposition. And even in a situation like we have now in Ukraine, when there is no real political opposition to Zelensky, not because of authoritarianism, you are in Kiev, you could see that we have a lot of independent media, TV is somewhat controlled, by still on TV like you have independent channels, which is certainly not government-controlled news space. But still, my explanation he believes that the moment he loses control over courts, then this control is going to another people, and people like Tatarov are continuation of his hands into controlling the systems. But when you look on corruption as something that you could somehow try to quantify, generally it is not as prevalent in Ukraine as it was in Yanukovych times. Most of the petty corruption was, in fact, eradicated by digitalization of public services, that was done very fast in time of Zelensky as president, because he put a lot of focus on digitization of public services. He put a very strong vice prime minister from the very beginning, Fyodorov, who is doing a lot of things there. And even before them, like, a lot of digitization was done as well. Yeah, so, it's a very digitized society. I was struck that you never get a paper menu in a restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody was saying to me, if you get a parking ticket, it comes on your phone, pay from your phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could even pay in restaurants via Google Pay or Apple Pay directly from QR code on your table in the restaurant. So yeah, it is true and it is true for public services as well. And it helps with, I could say, not just controlling corruption, but controlling against corruption. There is a whole coalition of civil society organizations in Ukraine working with the Ministry for Reconstruction on creating a big electronic system of management of reconstruction that will have the sort of interface for watchdog organizations. 
So we already heard from all international partners that we want to help you in reconstruction, but how you could prove to us that this will be corruption proof and the government is coming with these solutions and independent organizations, non-profit organizations, think tanks. We understand that this is our watchdog role here as well. I could say honestly that corruption is not beating us. We are beating corruption. And even with a lot of money coming, there will be a lot of misspend, not because of corruption, but because of inefficiency. But currently, we have much bigger problem of not enough money coming even to steal, not because Ukrainian government was sluggish. That was Lib Vajlinsky of the Center for Economic Strategy in Kiev, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. Please join me again next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.